Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to No credentials. Reviewing Rolling Stone 500. Greatest album. Welcome back, everyone, to the Sound Logic Podcast. Today, we are excited to discuss album number 46, which is Paul Simon's Graceland. One of my favorite things to do when we get to a new album is to do a Facebook search for the album artist and title, just to see if any of my friends have been talking about something uh, along those lines. Um, In this case, my friend Aaron Condo McCracken had a lengthy post from a few years ago asking people what they thought about the album Paul Simon's Graceland and whether or not the international flavors on the album were cultural appropriation. And the conversation was really fascinating to see people from different eras, generations, um, talking through this this um, highly regarded album, uh, but holding different kind of points of view of whether or not the artistry here was appropriate, was um, was brilliant, or completely stolen, uh, whether it should have been done because of the political moment of that time. And I thought, oh man, this would be a great person to have on the podcast when we talk about Graceland. So I reached out to Aaron. Uh, And not only did she say yes, but she said, hey, do you mind if I bring my husband along too? So we have two guests with us tonight who are here out of the generosity of their hearts uh, to to join us here tonight. Um, I know Aaron because we're both people who like uh, getting out into the community and engaging the sort of uh, justice causes that our local area has in front of it. Um, I did that sort of work for six years as a campus and community leader, a a pastor for a a student organization called Third Way Collective. Uh, Aaron has stepped out in a whole bunch of different kinds of ways, including running for Pennsylvania uh, uh, congressional representative at a a time, um, having a local business that that does catering and moves around the valley, um, and also is a local artist who's pretty highly regarded for the incredible music that she uh, creates. I know those pieces of who she is, and I'm sure there's a whole lot more, but I know very little about her husband, Josh. So, Aaron, thank you for being here. I wonder if you could introduce Josh for us now. Yes, please. Uh, Sure. And thank you for having me. Um, Yes. So my husband, Josh, uh, I wanted to have him on with me because it seems um, what we do in our home is, uh, is talk about music and politics and social justice and culture and how important these things are. Um, Josh is a huge lover of music. Uh, he's a very good dancer and a very good singer. Uh, and um, I just couldn't imagine talking without him. He's a contractor. Uh, and he does historic restoration, um, but he's, you know, an artist at heart. So that's what we'll say about Josh. 
Hello. I'm guessing we'll get to know the two of you uh, as we go along <laughs> here as well. Um, thank you so much to the both of you for being here. Um, I think one of the best parts about this podcast has been getting to know the different people who've joined us along the way. And I think anytime we bump into an album where um, we get to see it through the, the lens of someone else, that just deeply enhances the music. And, uh, and we're, we're always grateful for those opportunities. I'd like to do some details first because I think that'll just set the stage and the context. And I think it will really springboard into some discussion because everything about this album from its inception to the production, uh, the music itself, and some of the, I'll use the word controversy, <laughs> that has come since then, it all is very interesting and I think is a really good uh, place to start in terms yeah. of of just beginning. So so why don't we jump into some details? Details, 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 details. So the album was released August 25th, 1986. This was Paul Simon's seventh studio album. Um, so that doesn't include any of his albums with, uh, with Art Garfunkel, with Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, he wrote this album himself mostly <laughs> and had a little help on some of the tracks. Um, it charted very well. Number one in the UK, number th- three in the US, and to date has estimated to have sold somewhere around 16 million copies. So an extremely commercially successful album, not only when it came out, but since then. Um, Upon its release, it it did very well in award season, won the 1987 Grammy Award for Album of the Year. Um, And I think now would be a good time. I want to move to kind of how it started. And I think this would be, we can kind of have a bit of a round table. We'll start with the early 80s. Paul Simon was having a bit of a rough time. His marriage <laughs> with Carrie Fisher had deteriorated that it was over. Um, his last one or two solo albums had done very poorly, had not sold well. And his uh, record company wasn't very happy with, with his performance there. And so he had spiraled into a bit of a depression. Um, so he was, he was recording with another musician who gave him a bootleg tape cassette of South African street music. Yeah, we'll put a little bit of this Mbankwa uh, township music on in the background here as we move through these details. And because of that, he was he was inspired. He talked to one of his uh, music producer friends and got as many albums of South African music as he, he could and just started really investing in the music and decided that he wanted to make an album inspired by that music go over and play with some of those musicians and that's kind of how it started um at the time and this is where we can get into some of the political at the time the united nations had had boycotted the government of south africa because of apartheid which was still ongoing um so there weren't supposed to be any interactions with the government in terms of anything that would would support them or give them money or anything like that. Certainly uh, artists who went and played at segregated uh, resorts or do concerts for white audience were that was frowned upon. Um, and so the idea that Paul Simon would go over there immediately had people up in arms. He kind of did it, not totally in secret, but he went with his producer who had produced the Simon and Garfunkel stuff um, and uh, most of his solo stuff. They went together and he told record executives, and they 
they weren't really upset because they just thought anything that he was going to do was going to be a flop because he was washed <laughs> up. <laughs> they thought, you know what? Well, your last album sucked. They didn't support him, but not because of political, just because as an artist, they weren't confident that he had the stuff anymore. And so they went. He talked to two important artists before he went. He talked to Quincy Jones and he talked to Harry Belafonte because he wanted to get their opinion. And um, Quincy Jones supported him. Harry Belafonte was was uh, a little hesitant, but I think in the end supported him. Um, and so he decided to go. Um, and he got some resistance going from the ANC, Africa, African National Congress. And Ben, help me out here. That was the... Was that the opposition party at the time? Well, uh, you know, during apartheid, they were they were essentially an activist organization. They weren't really right. officially acknowledged as a political party, but that's who um, Nelson yeah. Mandela eventually ran successfully for as president mm-hmm. of the country. So, yeah, I don't know if at the time they probably would have called themselves a political party, but um, they they weren't necessarily uh, acknowledged as such. They weren't recognized. Yeah. Right, right. They weren't recognized. Yeah. yeah. So, but they had. I think they had a, on the world stage. They had an ear. Yes. Um, and they had a presence, and so they they protested him going, <laughs> um, and uh, I'm. It's hard to tell how many people knew at the time and how much was kind of. Uh, after the fact, people saying, well, we don't approve what you've already done. Because once he got over there, he was just working with the musicians. Uh, at the time, musicians in South Africa were getting about $15 an hour, and he wanted to pay them $200 an hour, which is double what musicians in New York were getting paid. He, uh, some, My wife and I were talking, she said, well, isn't that a bit of a rip, given how successful the album was? Wouldn't it be better to give them royalties? And I think some of them would have gotten because they have writing credits. But at the time, nobody knew if it would be successful. And he wanted to pay them up front. Um, and he he felt that he was doing right by them because he was giving them the money that they needed for their um, to, to keep their, their livelihood going and to continue promoting their music. Uh, one of the artists was quoted as saying, you know, we used each other. Paul Simon used us. Um, and and was inspired, and we were using him. And I don't think he means it in a negative way, but they needed each other, and th- they needed that recognition. He also said that it put their music on the world stage, something that might not have happened if he hadn't done that. So that's kind of the, the genesis of it in terms of just the production. They recorded for two weeks. Uh, he took the recordings, came back to New York, mastered them, had a few more musicians, some American musicians, one of them being Linda Ronstadt, and he was greatly criticized because just a few years prior, she had played a show at, uh, I think it was called the Sun Resort, which was a segregated resort in South Africa. And so that was greatly frowned upon when she did it. And then not only was he being criticized for making the album, but then for having her, I think she saw it as kind of a way to try and make amends for doing that um Mm -hmm. perhaps or maybe she said that after the fact i don't know um all this to say there's a lot going on here there's a there's a lot happening and we haven't even started talking about the music itself yet but just politically that's kind of how it started uh paul simon uh when criticized said you know i i did i wasn't working with the government i wasn't playing for segregated uh audiences and i wanted to uh show that I love this music and really support the musicians. And he feels uh, from what I've read that he did that. 
so um, that's that's a bit of a springboard. I want. I don't know any of you now. Now Ben, um, I don't know you, Aaron and Josh, but Ben, I know that you you spent a semester in South Africa. And I'm wondering, I know you'll have some personal reflection on the music, but just in this section, do you have anything to add there? Well, just like, you know, generationally, it's interesting how we get to these things, right? Like, um, I would have heard my dad playing this album initially and probably not, as a younger child, not really understood the cultural implications of having uh, artists from South Africa join you on an album. Um and then I went to South Africa and got to know Lady Smith, Black Mombasa, separately from Paul Simon's Graceland, and then returned home and would hear the songs and be like, oh, that sounds familiar. And the pieces sort of fell together for me after the fact. So it was, um, it was a strange sort of journey for me, not one that was, ex- was living it as it happened. Uh, you know, the, the, the apartheid movement was so... Um, such a big deal for sure but even for the people who lived it there's still disagreement on exactly um <laughs> how well it, it was resolved uh you know we we would um we would interact with uh with host families who were part of the black african community who had felt like their lives had been transformed mandela was a savior they had gone from being at the bottom of the pile to um, to at least seen as equals. Um, we talked to uh, people of mixed race who, during apartheid, were seen as slightly better than Black Africans and definitely very much worse than than um, white Europeans, at least in terms of the stratising stratification of the society. They kind of felt like a, the end of apartheid just meant that they were still stuck in the middle. And same thing for for mm-hmm. people with. Um, South Africa has a huge Indian population of people who were, um, some were brought there forcibly uh, to to be used as slave labor for the sugarcane fields, and uh, and others migrated there for for other opportunities and reasons. But but they too uh, sort of feel like they're still second class citizens. Um, they didn't get the power of the the black people when apartheid fell, and they weren't white, so they never really benefited that era. So so it's this rich incredible country with this really complicated past i remember bumping into a a white man he was he was definitely mentally unstable and probably housing insecure on the streets while we were there who came up to our group of mostly white people and said you should have been here during apartheid white people we lived like kings during that time and i just thought like can you say that out loud i guess so like wow um maybe this is like you know we we still have people flying the Confederate flag, even here in, in Pennsylvania, right? Maybe this is just always going to be part of their story is, um, you know, looking back with fondness on something that most of the world now sees as a tragedy. Uh, and yeah, it, you know, it it, uh, it was a, a really incredible country and culture to to do a semester abroad. And, um, and that big sort of like uh, explosion of all these different perspectives was carried home with me then so that when I listened to Graceland now I uh, I I'm still struggled with uh, I still struggle with you know what exactly is going on here is it okay is it um, better because of the international influence or is there something else going on here and I, I that's why I want to talk about it here tonight and I'm guessing Aaron <laughs> and Josh you've got some some good perspectives there as well too so yeah 
Well, I think I think this is a good point. We've Ben and I have have talked already for about fifteen minutes. Uh, <laughs> now I want I want to hand it. I want to I want to move over to to you, Aaron and Josh, and we can we can transition here. Uh, and I'm sure we'll come back to some other details about the album, but but I want to transition to you. You can decide if you want to go who goes first or if you bounce back and forth. But I want to hear your experience with this album, how how you learned about it, when you first heard it, um, and and kind of what role it's played in your life and your conversations about music between the two of you. Okay, well, I'm going to go first. Aaron goes first. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> so only because you brought up the Facebook posts. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, that I that I when, where I asked the question is this is Paul Simon's Graceland is it cultural appropriation or cultural appreciation? Yeah, I think was the question, and um, you know I I wrote that because I for some reason I think it was when I was running for office I and I was driving around a lot I was listening to that album nonstop like back to back on repeat because I have a CD player in my car uh, <laughs> you know for miles and miles through central Pennsylvania um, and I. And I was trying to figure out what the record mean to me um, and what, you know, and actually a lot of this was before a lot of the really heavy recent Black Lives Matter stuff that was happening during the pandemic. So I was still, I was having questions about how to talk about race or how to experience race, especially being in such a, a white, uh, basically a very white area. Um, and I think that's why I asked that question. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I have a, a strong recent familiarity with the album, just like having it memorized. Um, mm-hmm. If that makes, if that makes any sense. When I first heard it, I was 11. We were doing <laughs> the math. Um, so I was, uh, <laughs> um, it, it came out in 86, right? You said, so I was 11, but I remember you can call me Al being a video on MTV. We had MTV. I was not allowed to watch it, but I did extensively. And so that, <laughs> that video was on with Chevy, Chevy Chase dancing around. And, and again, I, you know, it's funny to read back, like the history that you were talking about, Michael, like I, I, um, I had no idea that was going on. I mean, I had, I knew about apartheid. I knew about the sun city boycott, but not, it's just, I wasn't putting any of these, I was young of course, but I was not putting any of these pieces together. It was just such an ever present song. I mean that and Graceland at the, at the time. Was there a reason for picking it up? uh, You know, driving around your Pennsylvania country roads. Was it, was it always (laughs) on from the time you were 11 until then or were, no. Were you reintroduced it to it for a <laughs> No, it wasn't. It wasn't stuck. I just couldn't. There was nothing else I wanted to listen to. I don't know. Hmm. I, we just have random. We we buy um, CDs at thrift stores. So if we see one, well, we have to have that title. We we buy it, and then that that's what we listen to. Yeah, know, we don't like seek out music on Spotify or whatever. We don't. But that's a record too. That when it comes back into your you know, when it comes back into, into play, it's, 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 it feels like it really matters again. It's one that can go away for 10 years and then be picked back up. And it feels, it feels really relevant. I mean, it does for me. And I think probably you were picking up on some musical, um, you know, influences and, 
Yeah. Well, he was, I mean, what I read about, uh, Paul Simon heard that that bootleg tape of, um, I guess it was the Boyoyo Boys um, uh, singing that gumboot song. And he was like, this is so sunny and um, and happy street music. It reminded him of doo-wop music from like New York City. Um, and so he was making a connection, some kind of human connection between those sort of music styles. Um, but I, I'm thinking that I responded, you know, I was running for office, so I, it was depressing. Like, <laughs> it was depressing. Yeah, it was, especially for my <laughs> husband, it was very depressing. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, it was, it was a hard time to do that. It was hard. Um, the conversations were very dreary uh, and sharply mm-hmm. divided. Um, which is interesting. I mean, they obviously were uh, when when he recorded Graceland. Um, I think one of the questions you ask is like, is it still relevant today? And it seems like, yeah. I mean, and I don't know that there are right answers. We were, we, Josh and I were talking about this. It's like, I'm so grateful for this album for, for so many reasons. Um, and I'm grateful for the conversation, but it is, it is a challenging it is a challenging conversation because <laughs> yeah. it's stealing. I mean, it's straight out stealing, like in a lot of ways. Like, I think there was some credit given to the musicians, but he basically went and he, he said, hey, we're just going to record um, all of these songs that you already do. And then I'm going to take them home and I'm going to write lyrics over top of them, maybe put in a bass line or something. But... Right. But it's brilliant at the same time. So where do you yeah. go? <laughs> so, so my experience with this record is is it was a huge deal in, in like in my household, um, and so I'm a little bit older than I think everyone here. <laughs> I was four, I was 14 at the time, and um, I don't know. That's a moment where like I think you sort of absorb music in a way that you don't maybe intellectualize. You know, you don't you're not. I feel like it was one of those deals where it was kind of it felt it felt kind of revolutionary, but like it was it was kind of unifying, and for for like where I was in very rural Pennsylvania, it was kind of it was kind of like opening opening the doors to like the rest of the world. Mm. Yeah, what Josh was saying earlier to me is that he, you know, whether or not these South African musicians needed to have their sound heard, you know, or be discovered, quote unquote, discovered. Um, Josh in rural Pennsylvania needed the music. He needed to hear that. that Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's an important, I mean, we've talked about the controversy and, and I think that conversation is incredibly important, not as a criticism so much as if we're not having that conversation, I think we're having trouble. Do you know what I mean? I think yeah. I think if we are sharing, influencing, um, inspiring one another, I think we need to understand who's doing what. Um, I think the difficulty with this record is that maybe in um, well, most certainly after the fact, I think people were looking for um, looking to understand who, if anyone was taken advantage of, um, but. In terms of the influence, like the 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 diplomacy, the way people were affected, who had access to new rhythms and um, musical styles and flavors and you know textures from around the world, I think I think for me, like rural 
Pennsylvania was kind of a cultural wasteland at that point. Certainly where <laughs> I was, there was some texture and some vibrancy was really a big deal. I mean, I can't, I mm. can't, what's it, overstate that. Um, <laughs> you know, I lived in a, I was from a very beautiful place, um, but attitudes were very, were st- in 1986, attitudes were, were, were very um, not uh, international. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think that that flavor was such a big deal. So in some ways, this whole attitude or the, the whole notion that, um, that, that cultural, cultural influence was taken from there, I think, I think also to that conversation needs to be added that it, it, it was desperately needed here, certainly where I was. And, and also maybe just in the 80s. Maybe mm. the, you know the Reagan the Reagan era eighties was pretty was pretty sparse. Um, yep. It was pretty yeah. sanitized, um, and I think this had that quality of of sort of pumping life back into music in a certain way that I think I think was really like I said it was a huge deal. And in, in my household, it was. Now we had had. Um, I think in our house we had spun Paul Simon records, um, and and interestingly, you know, like um, there were some rhythms from his earlier stuff, like uh, you know, like me and Julio, down by the schoolyard, and um, uh, what what's the song? Oh, he steals some reggae. Yeah, he does. Point. He played around. <laughs> well, well, what's interesting to me about I that it's is it's a famous he, song. He, I can't think. He of. does yeah. play around with rhythms that weren't that weren't conventional pop. Um, and I didn't know what I was hearing at the time, and so sometimes looking back right. at that, like, like this whole uh, this whole cultural appropriation conversation, it like Aaron was saying, it wasn't in the water then. Like we weren't having that conversation then. And the first time that even ever occurred to me that he was taking other people's music and using it for his benefit came um, in an interview that I heard. Uh, well into the 80s after Bob Marley's death, somebody was asking Bob Marley how he felt about um, about the cultural appropriation of, of Jamaican music that was happening at the time, where 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 white or, or people from elsewhere were were using music that he crafted um, and benefiting maybe more than he benefited from it, and like literally and and of course and paul simon's name came up in that conversation and it was literally the first time that it occurred to me um and of course that was that was him talking about cultural appropriation years before graceland so there were there were earlier indications that this might have become a problem (laughs) and and i will say um paul simon is He's a folk musician, and I, you know, I have some folk roots. And I mean, so there's, this is what it's called. It's called the folk process. I mean, this is what you do. You borrow sounds. You borrow. You sit in a circle and you, um, you share tunes and you inspire. You know, you inspire each other. There's always a fuzzy line between. Okay, well, I'm inspired by this, or I'm stealing it. Um, in reading about Paul Simon, he's, you know, and also he was very famous even if he wasn't a lull he was you know very wealthy very famous he was going to do what he wanted to do um he did get permission or you know quote unquote permission from quincy jones and uh, harry belafonte but you know he 
he got I the I feel nod. like nobody was going to stop him. He yeah. seemed so no laser focused on on finishing this project and um yeah, and I think that we wouldn't be having this conversation at all if he was some idiot who didn't have the chops <laughs> to go and, right. and mess around with people's music. He he obviously had some of the tools to 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 bring it to an audience and to make it, um, you know, you know, present it in a way that that yeah. I mean, one could certainly argue that these um, that that many of these musicians didn't need a world audience right i mean it, what maybe it wasn't even what they wanted however mm. um for some of them it probably was and it was a gateway to something yeah i i guess i find myself wondering if we'd feel differently if he had recorded them and then hired some white dudes here to replay their music um, you know, kind of <laughs> yeah, like what Elvis sure. used to do with with rock and roll, right? Yeah. Like he'd, he'd he'd hear a sound and then he and his band would recreate it, um, and they'd yeah. sell way more. Not as not as well as the <laughs> right, right. In some ways, there's like something to commend him for, right? He went to South Africa and he got them to play it for him. He did not take that bootleg tape and and tell his bandmates like, "Hey, fellas, let's re reproduce this." And let's never tell them where we got it from. Um, so, so yeah, I guess the, I want to, I want to, I want to see that tension too, um, and acknowledge that this is different, maybe than some of the appropriation that's been done in the past by by people of privilege here in North America. Um, yeah, yeah, but and I love what you're saying though too, Josh, about like you know music finding you when we had. Um, couple of other Southern Canadian friends on to talk about the miseducation of Lauren Hill. We were sort of sitting yeah. around and thinking like, how did the four of us in kind of rural suburbia, most of us growing up um, on or near farms, how did we hear the miseducation of Lauren Hill in high school and think like, this music speaks to me? Like what is going on, you know, <laughs> in yeah. our bodies, in our souls when that happens? Um, and I, I think there's something there that I want to hold up and and say, like, thank you, Paul Simon, for, like, bringing this across the ocean, making it accessible for these people who need more culture in, in their lives and and <laughs> stirring in us something that we felt was missing until we heard that for the first time, too. Absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, I want to. Uh, I, so it's a little bit miraculous that you just brought up that record the lauren hill record because <laughs> we were just discussing we were having we were having a little banter about cultural appropriation or and more specifically what what it can be what it can look like and and how how, how much borrowing do we accept as a uh, part of this process right yeah and um so i've been traveling to dc some for work lately and i spend a lot of time i love listening to the radio and so i just i i tend to find like r b soul stations and I love that record too. And as a from living, I was probably living in Woodward or Milheim, Pennsylvania, when that record, Lauren Hill record, came out. And it, like, it was a big deal. And how did that reach me? And why did that strike such a chord? Yeah. Um, um, but what I have, what I have realized listening to the stations in DC is I get all of the tunes, music from the 60s, 70s, 80s that influenced her. And all of the pieces come directly from other music, like <laughs> all of them, to uh, and 
it's interesting because I think it's seen um, it's seen in that culture as sort of an honoring and a bringing forward and yeah. like it's an oral yes. history, um, yeah. which I think is a fascinating. Now, I also think it's important to follow the money, right? Um, like who is benefiting, who got credit. Um, so when you bring <laughs> bring people from the past along, you know, they get they have to benefit as well, you know, as part yeah. of the story. Um, but that's a record that I think is it's fascinating because it's picked from pieces of history. It's it's picked from all of the things that influenced her, like pretty exactly, you know, to the song, to the statement, to the like gesture, to the to the you know little whimsical things that she does. So you know, and I notice them when you hear all of the influences. Maybe is it is it actual samples? It's a lot of samples. It's a lot of like actual just songs that are she redoes, you know, to almost to the to the to the note. So. And well, we realized when we went through that that there is an actual lawsuit that happened because she she got some neighborhood kids to record with her early yeah. on, took their ideas, <laughs> and then didn't credit them. So there's some actual <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> copyright stuff going on on that album too. Right on. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of melting pot as well to, to hold those two up together as well. Yeah. Well, we we uh, we've spent a lot of time not actually getting the music, Mike. Do you do you want to? I guess oh, we yeah, still have a, a couple of things here. here. <laughs> but, well, you know, it's 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 important to set the stage. I guess um, uh, I'll take us there. I'll, I'll share a little bit of of my experience. Um, so we talked a bit about age and I don't want to talk about age too much, but just as a, in contrast, so Ben and I turned four the year this came out. So we, <laughs> we, we didn't really hear it back yeah. then, but I struggled. It took me two or three times. And, and I had never, I had never listened to the album start to finish until just in the last few weeks preparing for this. I'd heard some of the tunes, but not sat down with the whole thing. So this experience was new for me. Of course I knew uh, you can call me Al and Graceland and I heard those. Um, the, the, the songs where you have African vocalists and some, some huge sections of songs uh, that are performed by those, those African musicians that to me wasn't uh, a shock to my system and i had to it took me a few times listening to it to realize that in 1986 uh, perfect what you're talking about josh in a place like rural pennsylvania and probably many places yeah. any non-urbanized place in in north america which pretty much the vast majority of it uh, in terms of space, not necessarily population, it would have been a total shock to put on a Paul Simon album or any popular musician and hear some of these sounds. It would have been so foreign. Uh, ben and I grew up, and and are, are either of you two Mennonite? You're not Mennonites, are you? No, no, no. So no. Ben and I grew up in a Mennonite church, and and to be aware of other cultures is not uncommon in the Mennonite church. Yeah, right. it's not uncommon for. Um, for Mennonite, many Mennonite, you know, in any church to have many families who would have gone with kids on long-term mission trips to live in other places of the mm -hmm. world in Africa. Ben himself, I won't speak to your experience, but Ben uh, spent almost a year in, in Ghana as a boy with his family, and many people that we know did that. So we have, uh, certainly in the 90s, some of our hymn books are just 
totally sprinkled throughout with music from all over the world as part of our hymns uh, mm-hmm. and to hear African music or to have a guest come in to play this kind of music in a church service is not uncommon. So to hear this music for me wasn't a shock because I grew up with some of it mm-hmm. and Ben has grown up with a lot of it. So it took me uh, a few times listening to go, this would have been really weird <laughs> for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. The diversity that was, yes, probably needed, but also I, I'm I'm sometimes surprised how successful it was, given how different that would have been and how, uh, not to sound cliche, but how totally foreign mm-hmm. those sounds would have been in yeah. popular music in America. And that's something that I, I, I'm going to agree with you, Ben. I'm very appreciative of Paul Simon for doing this. Yes, I see the challenges there and the controversy and some of the issues with doing that and the way it was done that... Some some say was great and some say, okay, well, here's some issues. I, I totally get that struggle. And I think that struggle is really, I don't want to use the word good, but it's important because mm-hmm. at very least it gets us talking about it and how we do that. Because maybe some people would never have heard, maybe even now in the digital age, you hear that and then you can go, huh, what's that? I'm going to Google that. Now you're learning about apartheid now you're learning about all these other things and it opens your eyes to a broader world so that was kind of my experience journeying through listening to it i'm i'm hearing these sounds and i'm just loving it going i love hearing sounds from all over the world this is great but i had to put myself that has been a struggle for ben and i listening to these putting ourselves back in the shoes of the people listening to the first time in 86 or 67 or wherever it came out not having a history of 30, 40, 50 years of all the music that has come since then and been flavored by it. Absolutely. And we hear something from the Stones or the Beatles in the 60s and go, oh, that's been done before. And try and say, yeah, but what was it like when you had never heard any of it mm-hmm. and nothing that came after? So that was, again, a challenge for me. Uh, but listening to it, it was very, um, very comfortable uh, to listen to the music Uh just the music, not necessarily the, the the lyrics or the statements. But that was kind of my – that's one takeaway I'll, I'll share from listening through through it uh, for the first time, really, just a few weeks ago. We always talk about the cover art. I didn't do any research on it. I don't know if you guys have. To me, it I looks like – I don't know like, anything about it. <laughs> it looks – I mean, you know, it's Google the can. picture. It, it's, it looks like, uh, to me, iconography like a picture of a, of a saint you'd see in an old church. It reminds yeah. me of, of, uh, of a Renaissance um, interpretation of maybe uh, someone going on the Crusades, which I was kind of disturbed that my mind went there right away because <laughs> it was a, you know, a colonized country. Um, yeah. Not in the Muslim world, obviously, but, but still. Uh, so, yeah, it's just – and, it, and it's, it's unique because – the picture only takes up just a small portion in the center of the album cover. Most of the album is just kind of a, an off white cream color, Paul Simon Graceland at the top in block capitals. And then this kind of uh, crudely drawn kind of picture of a, of a person on a horse. I, I don't know the significance of it. So I, I didn't feel I really wanted to get into it too much, but Ben, if you have anything, please jump in. It's not so much about the cover art, but I am really fascinated, especially spending some intentional time with this album recently, that this was called Graceland, which, um, at least in the United States, draws you immediately to Elvis and um, to sort of his 
rootedness mm. and uh and and that term it seems like an odd choice for an an album that is so intentionally built around south african music um and you know there are ways to to use graceland to refer to other things uh i think that's what's going on here it just seems i guess i i wish that the cover art or the album title would do a little bit more to point to where this influence is coming from. Both of them perplex me in, in the way they feel somewhat disjointed from the bones of what I think this album is. Um, you know, obviously there's a song I think called the songs, the, song, here, but... the songs are like that too, though. Yeah, that's like, true. I was thinking about that. Like, you know, um, it, with, the, with the exception of like under African skies, the the songs they have these it's various south african song and then the words are have nothing to do with south yeah. africa or yeah. with within i mean it's it's in a lot of ways it's nonsensical like yeah. his his songwriting is is his lyrics are they don't tie together in any kind of traditional way yeah i would yeah, say so like maybe they're really that's fun what... and silly Maybe that's what's what's um, what's rubbing me about this album cover is I want some acknowledgement there. And and you're right. He's not trying to do that. In fact, I think there's a quote from him around the time where he said, like, I'm not going to solve apartheid with an album. Why would I even try to tackle that? And like, yeah. oh, OK, so you're borrowing, you're acknowledging and you're just going to like make this abstract in a way that like really disconnects it from the rootedness that you have chosen. Uh yeah, it's it's a it's a bizarre artistic choice, I guess, and and maybe that's par for the course with with Paul Simon. Um, he's yeah, got I lots of weird think... weird songs that don't make sense, at least on paper. Um, yeah, yeah, he tends to, he tends to back away. He stirs the pot and then backs away. But <laughs> yeah, like that's a good like way to put um, it. like I, I I think we talked about earlier that he had. Aaron and I that that he he was pretty seemed he stated that he's pretty deliberately non-political right but then he wades into some pretty hot territory <laughs> right right Just yeah. like apartheid yeah, apartheid yeah. like the most unsolvable issue <laughs> yeah um I think that going yeah. back to his relationship with Art Garfunkel too, right? Like he always sort of claimed things were just fine, and then he'd write these songs about like being a a spurred lover, you know, <laughs> talking about yeah. his creative partner and, uh, you know, yeah. so yeah, it's always <laughs> never quite what it seems, uh, at least when you get to the recording studio. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm with you on that because I think when I was first introduced, like it was Graceland and call me Al mm -hmm. were the two songs that were everywhere. And it, I didn't listen to the whole album until later. So I didn't even get right. the, I didn't even I didn't even get the significance of it uh, until mm -hmm. until much later because it wasn't ever stressed. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and it sounds like, you know, the way we talk about the history of it, like there was all this controversy going on. And I, I'm not sure. Well, like Josh was saying, controversy isn't the same as it was. No, <laughs> I, I think I think the kind of drama that gets stirred today is a, is a, is a whole different level. Certainly, yeah. you know, um, not, not that we are dealing with any different issues. We probably are dealing with the exa exact same sorts of issues, but you know, but I think I think the knob was turned up is turned up a lot higher right now. Because um, it's not like radio didn't play it. 
I mean, they, you know, they, 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 they played it like crazy. Yep. Yep. I liked having not having a puzzle to figure out. Mm. For me, I feel I feel like there was some there were there were a lot of pieces that you didn't necessarily have to put together. I don't know why I felt that way, but I think at that moment it was kind of refreshing to not figure it out. Um, might have been naive on my part, but I, I, maybe it was like um, you know a new way of experiencing music for me. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I read I read something an anecdote about the Graceland. Um, and, and that is, mm. he it it was going to be based on T. S. Eliot's um, "Riding in the Wasteland" or something like that. I'm sure I got the quote wrong, but he was like, "Well, that's just too dark," so he he changed it to Graceland. So it is based on something. Interesting. And not great, you know. None of it makes sense. It's, I think he's just he takes so much license. Yeah, yeah. And what was our take on Elvis in 1986 as well? <laughs> and he, um, he had just died, right? Um, right. Fairly recently, I think, at that point. I know I know. as a kid at that point, I I thought Elvis was a punchline to, you know, to hmm. a joke. Uh, not a good one. Um, I mean, I feel, I feel differently yeah. now about him and his legacy. Um, yeah, but it's almost like it's almost like he's referencing kind of a pilgrimage, right? Like, like that he's he's going yeah. to have this visit to this yep. important place. Right. Um, it's pretty strange juxtaposition um, <laughs> to the material political material he's he's yeah. dealing with. But yeah, and somewhat ironically, I mean, I think. You can call me Al is a bit of a punchline yeah, yeah, yeah. now, right? Like, I there's even an episode of The Office where uh, Andy's trying to sell Jim and Pam on bringing his acapella group in to be the performers at their wedding, and he he plays a recorded thing where he does the bass line, and you can call me Al. Yeah. Am I walking down the aisle to you can call me Al? Trust me, you will not be walking. You will be boogieing. I am extremely interested. She's like, I'm sorry. Are you suggesting that I would want you can call me Al as I walk down the aisle? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so like it has become this like b- thing that's bigger than culture, too, where we could point to that and be like, what a ridiculous song that was. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's what goes around comes around, I guess, <laughs> to, to reference <laughs> Elvis in a in a song like this well, does feel like a little bit of a, yeah. a weird pause. Um so we, uh, if you listen to the podcast, you know that we, uh, we have a Spotify playlist called Sound Logic Favorites. We always uh, pick two tracks, and when we have guests, we love to have their uh, our guests pick the tracks. So um, between the two of you, what I want to do is I want you to pick your pick one each uh, your favorite tracks that you would have on this playlist to represent this album. But then from there, I want you to also talk about those tracks and then of course any others that are favorites should i we'd kind of decided on two yeah i think we did this we did this we did that we were prepared prepared. (laughs) we we both decided that we'd never experienced this record track by track first of all yes it is Um, a whole album it's like an album album which is it's kind of a unique thing i feel like but you know if we must choose the the two um (laughs) that I think are the most important are the, and they're back to back on the album. They kind of go together are the, um, I know what I know and gum boots. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, and so the I Know What I Know has the Gaza sister singing on it. They're, they do that really high African singing. It, to me, it's very otherworldly. And, and, you know, it sounds like maybe you were exposed to this a little bit in, in church or in through missions and stuff, but like that to me is like the coolest singing I've ever heard. Because uh, and, and as a singer, I'm just like I just don't understand it. I don't know how you get to that place where you sing, <laughs> like three of you sing that way. Yeah. One percent. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, and then the the the, the gumboot song is the song that kicked it all off, right? That is the and, right. and that is the Boyoyo boy, Boys Band. Uh-huh. Um, and they're both so happy and fun and. Vibrant. festive they're so joyous you know it's just it's like a, it's whole whole nother level i think that sometimes i'd listen to these songs and I, I know that these songs weren't on the radio but just that this album in the 80s could sell as many as it did and be so popular uh it, it's it like gives you to me it, it gives me hope for what we're capable of Receiving. And that that cocktail could work. That that yeah, yeah. that the the combination of his thing that he does, which is bizarre, or you know, harmonizing or whatever with um, you know African musicians, is, and that it's magic is is pretty miraculous. Aaron, um, thank you so much for referencing the the higher women voices <laughs> in the background. Um, there are two things that distinctively stand out in my memory from being in uh, in worship spaces in, in South Africa. One is that the um, the churches that did not have any kind of uh, percussion in, in their spaces because either they didn't have uh, money for instruments or, uh, you know, they just didn't include that in their space. The the will the women of the the church would often carry these really big leather bound Bibles and they would pound them with their with their hands and it would create this like almost like a fastball hitting a catcher's mitt kind of thump that would then echo throughout the space as they're sort of like this is the tempo we're keeping today. Listen to us pound on our on our weapon and. At a, jo- at a joyful moment uh, throughout the service, there would be this like shrill kind of almost sounded like a war cry, like like let's celebrate with like the most joyful sound that we can make in this moment. And that's what I think of when I think of those voices on on that particular track. Uh, it's like, oh my goodness, you're transporting me back to something I had forgotten about in this sacred space. Um, and I think that's why there's all these touchstones then throughout the music. The, the harmonies of uh, Ladysmith, Black Mombazo, and the way that they can like weave the the words together with with their vocal sounds and the acapella music that they create, um, all these opportunities to just take one little step further and tie it into South Africa with the words, and it, it just feels like a very significant missed opportunity. I don't even think I needed him to write an apartheid song. I think. Just acknowledge more, uh, whether it's changing it from Graceland to Soweto or, mm. or you know, Johannesburg or something like that. Just like, uh, I don't know why that wasn't possible for for him to to do. Um, but anyway, I, that's a that's a tangent <laughs> maybe for another day, another time. I, I love that, and you know, those they really capture the essence of the album. The two. 
more popular songs, which would be, of course, You Can Call Me Alan Graceland, as much as I love them, and I think we all... They're so good. (laughs) Thank you. I I didn't want to speak for everyone, but I mean... No, they are. It's all good. And listening to this, you know, You Can Call Me Al, there was more than once where I finished that track and just, just hit replay, because it just... It's one of those songs for me that I don't remember a time in my life where I wasn't aware of that song. And I remember being young and hearing that and going, oh, that sounds great. What is that? You know, and not knowing anything about who Paul Simon was or the music or anything. Um, Just that that hook, that horn hook is like so iconic and timeless for me. Um, And Graceland again. Uh, has a little bit more of that flavor, but still, is it doesn't really represent, I think, the feel and the essence of the album in the way that those other tracks that you pick do. Um, but yeah, great, Graceland, and I played that for my kids, and they were like, "Oh yeah, I know this." <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, this is they're, Yeah, they're 13 and 11, so they're starting to experience more music. And the internet is a really weird place right now. Not that it ever hasn't been, but uh, my kids will hear things and go. And I'll go, or they'll sing something, some old song, and I'll go, "How do you know that?" They're like, "Oh, that's a that's a meme." Yeah, of course. Like, yeah. What? Our, our our kids know all the old songs from like Disney movies, like Shrek, right, yeah. for instance. Shrek has like every song, like right. they'll hear REM, "End of the World as We Know It," and I'm like, "How do you know this song?" <laughs> I've never played. It. <laughs> yeah. I was kind of listening, going, "Okay, where's my protest song? Where's my?" You know, and and they're not there yeah. because that wasn't that's not what this album is. Um, so that was interesting. Yeah, I think um, there's probably less risk by him not including a protest song, right? He can just say, "This is my artistic <laughs> yeah. expression." Um, as a as a white guy with privilege, if you're going to write an apartheid song, you're probably right. going to get it wrong. Um, and so it's, it's probably safer to do it this way. One thing I think I always have appreciated about Paul Simon is he didn't, he never seemed to try to be the coolest guy in the room. I don't think he was ever, was, no. you know, <laughs> and I, I think, I think, I think definitely in 86, nope. that was, that was unique. You know, I think, I feel like, I feel like, yeah, especially in the 80s, there was sort of a, a macho, you know, thing that I don't think he played along yeah. with. So I credit him for that. Yeah. Yeah. You've got the big hair uh, rock music too, trying to like figure out uh, gender identities and things like that. He no. didn't really engage there either. So. I have this image of him um, in, the, in the turkey costume yeah. on hosting yeah, yeah. Saturday Night Live. Have you all seen this? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's like he's a sad turkey. He's a sad turkey. He's a pitiful turkey. He <laughs> <laughs> just completely plays along. There, there are a couple of uh, old interviews that I've looked at, trying to understand. I think when we talked through Bridge Over Troubled Water, trying to understand the Simon and Garfunkel relationship, and you, you could see him on talk shows like people trying to get a rise out of him like saying didn't this happen between you and he just sort of shrug it off like he, he just always seems like a boring interview um yeah <laughs> it, it, like my talent is that's on the, the album see, that's the thing most artists most yeah. artists are pretty boring yeah, what, yeah. they sit in a song they sit in a room and they write <laughs> it, it's not 
not exciting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm excited. Aaron's the most exciting position. Nice save. I have one question, and if this is a, a bunny trail, Ben, you can you can cut it later. This album was very successful, and I said I listened to it, and you know, and the lyrics, and you can call me Al. I think help me answer the question or at least what I think is the answer, but I don't want to ask why was it successful, but the question I want to ask is who did he write this music for? Um, who was his audience? Because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't new wave or it wasn't Michael Jackson. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't pop music. It wasn't really folk music. Like not like the folk he was doing in the late sixties and early seventies. Who was he writing it for? The best answer I could come up with in my head, and I'm not sure what you think, was that he was right. I mean, a man walks down the street, says, why am I soft in the middle now? I mean, he's he's 45, and all his fans from uh, the, the late 60s and early 70s have aged with him. Is, is he? He's not writing this for 19-year-olds. Is he writing this for, you know, the middle-aged white white man like is that who he's he's <laughs> writing it for uh, and all these people and now they have you know they have good jobs and fixed income so they're all buying the album is that is that what happened or, or like i couldn't figure out yeah. who did he write it for and and why was it po- why was that song popular in 86 why was it popular? Uh, um i don't know if you have any if that's an even relevant a relevant conversation at all but that was a puzzling thing to me like not only we talked about the culture shock of hearing some of this music which would have been just so out there. And a lot of people would have heard it and said, well, that's too foreign for me. You know, like that's, that's not my music yet. It goes on to be one of the greatest selling albums of the decade. So uh, any, it's possible, it's possible that it was MTV and the video with uh, Chevy Chase. Yeah. I, I wouldn't doubt it. I, I feel like I remember having those same questions. Like this is odd that this, yeah. Yeah. They're playing this song all the time on MTV. <laughs> um, but th- there was still room for it back then. What else was happening right then? What else What else was on MTV at that moment? That's my That's my question. So we can pull up our, our sortable uh, <laughs> album list for this 500 list. And the other albums are, are pretty different. Like there's a Metallica album. Yeah. There's a Janet Jackson album. The Smiths, Beastie Boys, Run DMC, Peter Gabriel. Peter Gabriel may be the closest. Yeah, most similar. Uh, peer out of all of those, but lots of weird that stuff. Was lots of like, let's step yeah. outside the box and try something new. Yeah, I mean, maybe a lot of people were having the experience I was having, where like different was was really captured people's imaginations. Yeah. I mean, because it did, it does, in a lot of ways, it seems like, you know, a Seinfeld episode where he was trying to do <laughs> things. He was trying to, he was trying to do everything wrong, yeah. and, and, he, and he hit it out of the park somehow. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and we, you know, we've, we've talked a number of times through this journey, some of the best albums, um, you know, all the way back to Sgt. Pepper's, when, when a band says, you know what, we're tired of what we've been doing. Let's try mm-hmm. and break the mold, and let's not do it for our fans, but let's just do it for us. That's often the sort of the, <laughs> the moment where greatness happens too, right? Um, yeah. 
I, Mike, I think when I hear you ask that question, I think about the way that you started this episode by reminding us that he's kind of in a midlife crisis moment, right? Yeah. Like his, his love just left him. Um, he, he came off an album failure. I think, uh, you can call me Al is like <laughs> a sad guy looking in the mirror being like, how did I even get to this point? And yeah. maybe I'll sing about it and maybe we'll make it the most upbeat poppy song on the album <laughs> and see, see what happens. Yeah. The, I, again, when, when we do these, you know, we don't have, I don't, unfortunately, I don't have the time to, to really do a deep dive into all the facets of it. But that was one thing that I kind of just kept asking, like, yeah. who's this for, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and maybe that doesn't matter. And, and Aaron, maybe you can speak to this, you know, there's, I'm sure a lot of different reasons why you release an album, why you write the songs you do, what inspires you, uh, how you tweak um, different songs and different uh, engineering and mixing and mastering and all that. There's so many things that could influence. Um, it could be just for you. It could be to try and capture, hone in on a certain audience. So we could, unless we had Paul right here, and even he might change his story to what it was yeah. uh, 35 <laughs> years ago. Um, anyways. <laughs> The last song I wrote, it's been a while because I've been busy, but was was inspired by Afrobeat music. Okay. So it's a it's kind of a similar, you know, obviously I didn't get, it wasn't as successful as Paul Simon's record, <laughs> but, um, you know, Josh had, it took me to this um, anti-ballast concert, and then he'd also intro introduced me to uh, Fela Kuti and uh, other Afrobeat musicians, and I... I loved the horn. I just loved it. I loved it so much. I love the rhythm and the horns. And so I wrote um, my own song like that was inspired by that. And it is one of the um, I haven't recorded it yet, uh, but it's one of the songs that is probably my favorite to play. And it has a whole horn arrangement and things oh, nice. like that. Um, but it doesn't it does not sound like Afrobeat. Yes, like it does. It does. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe if you know, I'm like. I, it's like my it's such my version that I, I couldn't have it's got it's got this heavy repetition thing that starts to fold back on itself and it feels like a, a groove that sort of you know it is is gonna just sustain itself yeah um, so yeah so maybe That's it cool. is it works. Yeah, more obvious. <laughs> I pulled it off. But, it was a somewhat successful. But, I mean, that's a cool. That's that's something she did say that she was going to write an Afrobeat song, and um, after spending a lot of time with a few of these records, and you know, it's, I think that's pretty. Uh, uh, it's pretty fascinating to be influenced that way and need to need to step in there and you know. It, it was player. definitely like, and I'm a, originally a country folk singer, so right. that is a, it, it was born out of a need to do something different. Right. I mean, I had horns before, uh, but not, not, I hadn't taken it that So I think there is certainly a desire to, to change it up and be inspired. Otherwise, what are you doing? Yeah. You know? I guess I've always taken this record in as um, maybe maybe a little uncritically, which mm. I I'm critical mm. about everything, so that I feel like <laughs> I feel like that's an anomaly for me, and I kind of appreciate that that's a space that it gets to be in. Um, I'm real sensitive about uh, those sort of racial issues, so I take them pretty seriously, especially when people are, you know, um, 
engaging and capitalizing on other people's uh, you know misfortune but um yeah i i feel like um i feel like i have enjoyed it um you know it's it's like a touch like you said it's a, it's a touchstone for me this record it's it's sort of in a lot of ways there are things that you there are bits of this record that you could not imagine there they're not being out there in the you know in the sound waves yeah like like there are some things that have you know as a kid like as a kid would would never assume that there was anything before this kind of in the same way that i think of a lot of music that came before i was born or when i was very young but i appreciate that i have that i i guess um a lot of what we've done in this conversation is 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 talk about some things that I think I have never really overthought. I've sort of let them be, and I, I really like that about this record. Um, and I've I've also liked thinking about some of the bits of it that are problem really problematic. So, right. I, I feel, and not to oversimplify, I feel like in reading just some of Paul Simon's comments about it, that was sort of his intent to not overstate anything, to just create what he wanted to create. The music that he was inspired by, and and put it out there, um, and and I'm I know there's more to it than just that, but that I think was his intent to do that. Um, it's and one other thing I wanted to touch on. It's interesting you you brought up the Afro beat because we kind of uh, and if you're if you're listening at home and this is new to you and you want to listen to something else, um, we recently reviewed. Um, the Talking Heads remain in light, and they were that album was like based on uh, a Felakuti album uh, when they did it. So we we had a similar conversation, and I think we referenced that we were going to talk about Graceland because they they also did they didn't they didn't direct they didn't use any of the musicians, and they didn't you know do any straight lifts i don't think they kind of adapted it to their style or that's my interpretation of it on that album uh, but it's a, it's another conversation of you know using that that cultural piece that those songs that sound from another culture for your own purpose and how do we do that and how do we do it appropriately and and how do we view when someone else does it or even if it was four years ago uh how do we just walk around that and talk about it and and that's another good one uh that i enjoy talking through uh, and and kind of going okay so how do we how do we appropriately tackle this one <laughs> so um yeah we can we can transition kind of move to closing remarks and and we've touched on this already but you know we asked the relevancy question sometimes we talk about it for a while and sometimes we don't we you know maybe only spend a few minutes um and i guess really the root of it is where does it fit now uh we've talked about how it fits for us personally in terms of culture uh is it still relevant um I made a note and Ben was kind of over over me. I said, Oh, I don't think so. And he was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I mean, <laughs> I think uh, musically uh, it's very different. And I don't know where musically and feel free to, to, to debate this. I don't know musically where it fits right now. And the people making music right now, uh, are they in the studio, you know, throwing on Graceland to get inspired? I, I don't know if that's happening a whole lot lyrically we talked about his lyrics are kind of just 
you know, they're abstract and they're sometimes nonsensical and they're not poignantly political really at all, uh, or, or very little. Uh, so lyrically, I don't think they're necessarily, I think the issues around it are more relevant than the music itself, perhaps. That's my take on it. Um, anyone jump in here and, and give your, your take on it. Are you crazy? No, I'm just <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good save. That's a good save. I like I like that uh, clarification. Um, I, you know, what you just said a bit ago here, Josh. Like, uh, I've never really gone much deeper with this album than what it gives me right away, and I think that's a sign of an album's greatness to me that we can take it at face value, enjoy it in that space, and also go deeper and try and figure out the story behind the story. Um, the fact that there are these, these layers of this album, um, not just its lyrics, but its cultural moment and touchstone, uh, makes me think that this is relevant in the way that, uh, um, you know, a, a great novel written a few uh, decades ago is still relevant if it makes you think and if it stretches you a little bit. Um, I, I agree, Mike. I think some of the sounds here don't sound like what is currently being created, but I think we are in a moment where artists, especially in, in, um, in hip hop and other uh, yeah, more yeah. popular styles, are borrowing from inter international places all over yeah, the place. It probably sure. doesn't, sound, yeah. doesn't sound as folky as this, but um, I don't think I'd be too surprised if I heard... Uh, a sampling of some of the like higher uh, echoey reverby guitar that's on this album um, find its way into something uh, and and even some of the sort of like vocal harmonizing I think uh, is very appropriate for, for some of the, the music that's being created right now um, although boy this is getting rambly but I'll try and make it quick uh, Coldplay <laughs> last year two years ago maybe now released um right. an album where they tried to do the same thing they tried to draw on a bunch of international influences i think their hardcore fans thought it was one of the best things they ever created i think that no one really listened to it like i i think it kind of flopped because yeah. it was it was them sampling the world's music rather than what people wanted which was just, just keep giving us Coldplay. um <laughs> so, so you might be right. Maybe, maybe we're not right at the point where people want all these other interesting flavors brought in. They want it to still sound like, um, I don't know, give me Paul Simon. And, you know, you can throw in a few influences here and there, but give me Paul Simon. I, I don't know. You remember a few years ago we had this radio station called The Freak in, yeah. in the in State College, and um, one of the best songs that I heard was um and i bought the album was a paul simon song called uh, again a really silly title it was called like um oh a newer one I, yeah like it I was knew. a new it was a new paul <laughs> simon song and it was about um, <laughs> that's right having a wristband or a um i can't even remember the name of it but i bought it's the album wristband. yes yeah. i think it's called wristband and it's all about like being cool and being in the party yeah he couldn't get back he he went outside to smoke a joint or something and he couldn't get back in to perform because he didn't have a wristband <laughs> so, and, I mean, that's like the silliness of the song but, but the rhythm yeah, of yeah. the song is it was so just, good it it's an amazing a, song it, it was impossible to deny and then yes. it was him doing his 
telling a silly story over top. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was the same point. So, I, I, and I know that isn't it, like the album wasn't as good as Graceland. Like I bought it, it wasn't as good. But that that kind of music where the rhythm is really strong, and um, he, he has such a nice voice still. Um, like that kind of stuff, I think is still appreciated. And obviously, the freak, you know, it wasn't a huge commercial success. Um, I don't, I can't speak to any relevance about commercial music today. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Um, I feel we're like in a really dark place. <laughs> and, and, it, uh, and it's really unfortunate because I feel like it matters like to have access to good music. So I, and it's relevant, it's like this, I feel like it's relevant because it's important like to, to listen to something that is so masterful. Like that, we, we just don't have, a, I don't want to say kids these days, but we if you just listen to the radio, we don't have access to that. You know, um, I, I, I feel really sorry for I guess, unless, except they're getting the, the old songs through memes, like you said, or on Disney, I don't know. But it's, it's up, relevant. It's up to way. the. It's up to us, the parents. <laughs> that's right. We have to. Right. Like, if we don't, and I mean, that's been another great thing about this project. And I'll not force them to, but I'll play it with them around, and, and just everyone's on. What do you think? You know, and and my uh, my son did a school project during Black History Month. He did a school project on Stevie Wonder. And and uh, we're learning Stevie Wonder right now too in our house. Yeah, and and he and he. You know, we were going back and forth. He was telling me uh, stuff about him, and then I was telling him. You know, we did. Uh, we've reviewed songs in the key of life and Intervision on this show, and um, you know, we were. He was telling me all the great things about Stevie Wonder. So, I'm not going to take credit for it necessarily, but sometimes, like he likes to listen to podcasts to go to bed, and sometimes he'll listen to our podcasts, which is really cool. So he's hearing about all yeah. this different music. If we don't do that they're not necessarily going to get it um that's right at school or or you know listening or watching tiktok and getting educated <laughs> you know 20 seconds at a time um <laughs> uh, anyways yeah. I, i'm not going to keep going <laughs> a part of it has to do with the way we consume music these days right like we don't our kids don't listen to the radio. They probably yep. listen to Spotify and it means that they bounce from their favorite track to their favorite track. Um, yep. Spotify might accidentally play them something related, uh, which maybe <laughs> takes them on a rabbit trail. Um, and, but it, it's, it's so self-selecting that you wind up in sort of always the same comfortable space. Um, the radio didn't really yeah. allow us to do that, I think. And, and so I think just that alone is, is really changing. I, I have been, somewhat pleasantly surprised with albums like Beyonce's Lemonade. Um, even I, I continue to think about Kendrick Lamar's, um, I'm forgetting the name of that album that we talked about on. Uh, to Pimp a Butterfly. Uh, to Pimp a Butterfly. And the way that um, We Gonna Be All Right has been used as a protest song during the, the Black Lives Matter movement. I think there is music out there. I think what my hope is, is that, four years of Trump's America means that lots of great music just got written that we're about to hear in the next few years mm -hmm. as it all comes to light um, yeah, <laughs> uh, as we try yeah. and make sense of what that, what that moment in time was. Uh, I really hope so anyway, that, that, that music will continue to be um, uh, uh, used as a tool to, to defeat fascism, to defeat uh, 
the things that are still wrong with <laughs> with the world. I think wasn't it was it a Guthrie, Woody Guthrie quote, the, or did he have it painted on his guitar? This machine defeats fascism, or something like that. Um, yeah. So so who knows? Maybe maybe we're on the cusp fascism. of another uh, uh, amazing moment in music. We'll see. Um, we yeah. haven't gotten to your uh, thoughts yet, Josh. Sorry, we we bounced around there a little bit. Uh, oh. What do you think about the relevancy like of this of this album? Well, I um, let's see. I think I think that I'm hopeful that it is relevant in the same way that it that it maybe was bizarre that it was successful in the first place. Um, just that it 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 didn't fit, you know. And maybe maybe going forward, it 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 will it'll not fit in the same way and be relevant. Um, I and I, and like you said, uh, you wouldn't be at all surprised to hear it sampled or to, mm. or to hear some of those rhythms used. And in some ways it'd be funny to hear, um, hear it even used ironically, you know, like yeah. even as, you know, just play playfully used and, um, and work because some of the rhythms are so undeniable, you know? Um, yeah. 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 But I, and, and also I, I guess finally, I think that just, you know, all you can do is plant the seed, uh, you know, like playing music for your kids and turning them on to what, you know, uh, stuff that you'd like to help them to help carry forward. I feel like um, at at its best, this record is, I mean, certainly for me, and I think what I appreciate of it is that it planted a seed in me um, yeah. and and probably for millions and millions of others that, yeah. that you know, has led to an appreciation Um for you know music internationally the last point we go through is um and this one sometimes i mean ben and i uh kind of live and breathe this list this 500 list but we ask you know do you think the ranking was good this comes in at number 46 46th best album ever um so then the question is do you think that's as we say sound logic is that a good spot for it well, do you want to hear the conversation we had in the car yesterday? Sh- it was. Yeah, I sure do. <laughs> it was. Well, I can paraphrase. Yeah, there are probably only forty-five records that are better than this. One being <laughs> Prince. Yeah, are there forty-five? <laughs> one being, and, and you said Prince. Uh, was it Sign of the Times? Which one was it? Yeah, Sign of the Times. We right. just reviewed. Which is the, yeah. Which is, yeah, yeah, he brought that up. I, th- I thought he was reading my mind. <laughs> we were t- we were talking about Prince. We were talking about Lauren Hill. We we were you know before Stevie Wonder. The, Stevie Wonder sure. before the interview. Um, <laughs> it yes. sounds pretty sound. The placing of it sounds sounds right. Yeah. Um, I can imagine there being. Well, the, honestly, uh, in terms of a record, because that's an that's I feel like that's an interesting thing because there there are. Um, uh, there's a lot of music that I can pick three songs that are just, you know, amazing top 50, but are they an album? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is really, this is very much an album, probably in a way that people don't, I'm not sure, but probably in a way people don't really do anymore. Yeah. No. Yeah. I find it fascinating. It used to be a little lower um, in the uh, earlier renditions of this list. The first one came out, Back in 2003, it was number 81. In 2012, it bumped up slightly to number 71. And now here it is at 46. 
So something wow. in the Rolling yeah. Stone um, reviewers has has nudged this one higher over time. Um, I would have assumed um, this list in general prioritizes people of color and women. Um, it does a better job, at least, than the prior lists did uh, coming out in 2020. Yep. Um, and so I, I think I would have assumed that a, an album from the 80s written by a white guy with privilege sort of going through a midlife crisis would have got bumped down. But I think there is a cultural <laughs> relevancy here that uh, uh, perhaps for its historic moment, for the way that it brought international music to the forefront, um, people are actually lifting it up right now and and saying, no, we mm-hmm. do need to not forget about this, but but have it higher. Right. Um, it's yeah. it's one that I will consider putting in my uh, top personal top ten of the the favorite albums that I have on this list to listen to. Um, but I think that's probably more of just the length of time that I've been enjoying it, and not necessarily because of a sense of greatness when I listen to it. Although I think those two things probably also go hand in hand. Um, I'm not surprised that it's here at forty six. Uh, but I think I wouldn't have been surprised either if it had remained at the sort of 80s or 70s. Um, what about you, Mike? Yeah, the, I do, that's tough. It, um, I think as a cultural phenomenon, it kind of, especially the, the, especially the, the you can call me Al track, I think still has ripple effects in pop culture. And I think in general, it, it did make some ripples and some lasting ones. Um, I think as a, like I said before, I think the, the conversations around the album are possibly more relevant (laughs) today than, than the album itself. And I, I'm hesitant Mm -hmm. to say that because the album is very good and very important. Um, But the idea, I think behind it, the idea, and just to have the conversation of how do we approach it? How do we address this? How do we talk about taking music from another culture, whether, you know, how do we pay people appropriately for it, et cetera. It goes on yeah. and on. And then how do we have these conversations about, about these really poignant issues, especially in the, you know, with the racial tensions being so high um, in the last few years, we need these albums to, to keep having conversations. So I could see that's why maybe it bumped up. I'm, I'm fine with it being here. Um, are there only 45 albums that are better than it? Uh, I don't know. There's, there's some that we've listened to that I would, I would put much below this. So, um, yeah, no, I'm fine with it here. I think it makes sense. I, you know, I don't see it being top 10 or top 20, uh, but it makes sense here for me. I'm inspired to make a list. I'm going to have to make a list. We, we, Josh, you and I will have to do it together. There you go. And we'll get back to you. Yeah. It's, <laughs> there wouldn't, there certainly wouldn't be a whole podcast of, of people discussing what that, whether that list is good or bad. So, yeah, go for it. <laughs> do, you, do you all find that, um, that albums that come from before your time are a little harder to place? In terms of relevance, it depends. It totally depends on the familiarity. Um, yeah. I think it's actually yeah. been harder to place albums from genres that were not super right, right. Uh, deeply influenced by than it is for for older albums. Um, knowing very little about hip hop and its history means that, like, we don't really fully understand why Public Enemy is just a little bit better than. 
um, Kanye West, uh, Kanye West, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, like, yeah. And uh, even though one is more close to our time frame, I, I listen to both of them and think, well, there's some really great things here, but it's not really my sweet spot. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And a lot of that uh, having to do yeah. with the, the, the moment, I guess, and, yeah. and how it's impact. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We always like to discuss, you know, are we going to talk about this artist again on the list? So uh, we do have one more album from Paul Simon um, at number 425. So like eight years down the road when we get there, 1972's uh, self-titled album, Paul Simon. And then uh, a Simon and Garfunkel album, which we've already reviewed but coming up way down, it was pretty high up before on the last version of the list. Now it's 172. That's Bridge Over Troubled Water. Um, and then there was a few albums. I won't list them all, but there was like two from Paul Simon and one or two from Simon and Garfunkel that got bumped off the list um, that was on before. Actually, which ones were they? Uh, Parsley Sage, Rosemary and Time is no longer. That's Simon and Garfunkel and Bookend, Simon and Garfunkel and their greatest hits <laughs> and also uh, Paul Simon's there goes Ryman and Simon all um, no longer on this list anymore. So that Bonk, is relevant. Well, I, that's what I was going to say. Maybe that's just showing the shift and we see a big shift in this list from the 2012 version to the 2020 version of way more diversity in the artists and a lot less. It was very uh, stacked with those kind of, 60s and 70s white male artists and there is more diversity yeah. on these lists so um i'm i'm glad we got to talk about this one uh yeah. i don't know if we need all of his albums on the list <laughs> but uh <laughs> i um, would str- i would struggle to sit and listen to a whole simon and garfunkel record i i have to say <laughs> <laughs> to get through the whole thing at this point although i appreciate them yeah <laughs> We appreciate the two of you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. Um, uh, our conversations are fun when it's just the two of us, but they're always enhanced when we've got guests. So thank you for, yeah. for adding your voice to the the SoundLogic podcast. We're not sure how many uh, albums we'll ever get through, how long podcasting <laughs> will still be a thing, or when Rolling Stone will spring the new list on us again. Well, thank you. Well, I commend you all for doing yeah. it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Bravo. Thank you so much. Mike, what do we got coming up next time? Well, next time uh, we're going to go back and revisit a review we've done previously. This is now number 47 on the new 2020 list. This is a self-titled album by the Ramones. Uh, So uh, that's what we'll be talking about next time. Um, Until then, we hope that you continue to be well that you take care of yourselves and those around you and that you'll join us next time right here on the sound logic podcast. Bye-bye for now. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page on Instagram or through our sound logic podcast, Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.